Andrews University from Loma Linda University. I grew up in Southern California and I graduated from Loma Linda University and I love to come back home. Uh, you know, Michigan is a thousand miles from the nearest mountain and that's very depressing from one who grew up in Southern California and spent many of his summers up in the high Sierras hiking. And uh, first six months I was back at Andrews, I uh, hallucinated. You know, every time I saw a bank of clouds, I thought that it was a, a mountain range. And finally that first summer, I got so lonely for mountains that Joanne and I, we hired ourselves out as apple pickers, you know, to climb up in apple trees. That's all the higher you can get in Michigan. So we had this feeling of elevation. That's that's about all the the highs that you can find in Michigan. But I like Michigan. But I love coming home to good old Southern California, flying over the Rockies today, the snow, fresh snow on top of all those 54 14ers. Anybody climbed any of those 14ers in the Colorado Rockies? Uh, I'm on a quest to get all 54 of those, and my, my son and I have done uh, 46 of them now. So, But uh, uh, then coming up over my favorite mountains out here, San Jacinto and San Gregonio. I proposed to my wife up on San Jacinto. And uh, so th this is really uh, fraught with much memories, this area. There's one thing that I need to do, though, in order to be comfortable. I look out at all of you, and you're all so comfortable, and no one has one of these on. Why am I wearing one? Do you, would, you, would you be offended? If you're the only one in the room that has on a coat, you know, I look at every opportunity I can. <laughs> and I even found an, I even found a sanctuary reason for it. You probably heard this text, but I, uh, I started pastoring in Buckeye, Arizona. That was my first district to pastor. You know Buckeye, Arizona? Anybody been to Buckeye? It's just west of Phoenix and it's the hottest place in the United States, the hottest town in the United States. It's usually just about as hot as Death Valley. You read the same temp thermometer reading at Buckeye as you do Death Valley. And so I arrived there the first, uh, the first Sabbath, ready to preach after finishing seminary, had on my dark suit and my tie and walked in there. And the first elder said, ran up to the platform and said, didn't they teach you to, to believe in the Bible back at the seminary? I said, what? What do you mean? Well, you know, you got to follow the Bible. And I said, well, what do you mean? And so he turned to this wonderful sanctuary text. Oh, Brother Jago, I still, I still bless his heart for saving me from fate worse than death throughout my whole ministry. Ezekiel 44, verse 18, speaking about the sanctuary, the ministers and priests at the sanctuary, it says, Ezekiel 44, verse 18, the last line, they shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. It's a great text. It helps you to get your coat off many places. And so, thank you that I feel comfortable. The tie is coming next. It'll take a little while. All right, here we go. I'm a teacher, not a preacher, so I need a whiteboard or something to be able to feel at home. And teachers like to ask questions, especially when they don't have to grade the answers. You know, I teach for free. 
and I'm probably not going to stay up here very long because that's awful high up there. Teachers teach, for, at least I teach for free. I make all my salary during those weeks when I'm grading examinations and papers. You know, the rest of the time I teach for free. And so this time I can ask questions and I don't have to grade them. And it's the perfect kind of teaching. So here's my question for the night as we start out tonight. If you just had one thing that you'd ask God for, just one, one thing that you would you would say, God, I, I really, I really want this. I'd really like to just seek for this one thing in my life. What would you ask him for? Now there's no this this is a great question because there's no right or wrong answers, okay? So what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Yeah. A perfect character. Beautiful. Yes. What else? Holy Spirit. Awesome. What what other things came to your mind? Wisdom. Wisdom. Yes. Peace. Indeed. Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great to know what he wants you to do all the time? Oh, these are great answers. Any, anyone else had a thought that came to your mind? Yeah. Overcoming sin, okay, indeed. I think if we went to everyone in the room, we'd all have a great answer. It'd all be a little different, you know, but it'd be a great answer. Now, I said there's no right or wrong answer, but there is an inspired answer to that question. You know, there is a text in the Bible that an inspired Bible writer gives us an answer, his answer to that question. Now, in the New Testament, there's the answer to the question, this one thing I do. Remember, Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things are behind and pressing forth unto the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That was the this one thing I do question. But in the Old Testament, we've got a this one thing I ask of God. Only one. And it's tucked over here, and you may already are hearing the familiar cadences of the language, but it's tucked over in the book of Psalms. And the psalm is, yes, Psalm 27, written by David when he was hiding in the mountains in the wilderness of Judea, fleeing from King Saul. And Every day he knew that that might be his last night because Saul was just over the hill. His armies were just camped over on the next hill and he never knew when Saul would come upon him in the, in the night and he'd be, he'd be history. It was quite a, quite a scary time for David. But he was up to the situation because he learned to trust in God implicitly. And so this psalm starts out with these great words. You hear, I can hear the song that you often hear the soloist sing. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Can you hear that song? Have you ever heard a soloist sing that? A, especially a high soprano that just goes way up there. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me, and they were, Saul, the wicked, was coming against David just as he was writing this under inspiration. To eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, 
They stumbled and fell. And we saw that that's what happened time after time to King Saul. He was just ready to pounce when God intervened in a marvelous way. Though an enemy should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war should rise against me. And it was. In this I will be confident. Now comes the the verse. Verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. Now what was David's answer to this quest? This single-minded quest. You know, I've rarely heard an Adventist give the answer David gave. You know, and all of our answers are right. In fact, the more we look at this text, we'll find that everyone that gave an answer here fits into David's answer. He was really saying that and more. But what's David's one thing that he wanted to ask of God? I heard it quoted in the back row, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What? Your single-minded quest in life is to live in the church? That seems a little odd for David to choose that as his focus of life. And I've heard people try to explain away this text. I've heard some say, well, you know, you know the old adage, absence makes the heart grow fonder. A couple weeks ago, I was in Siberia and no internet access, no phone access. My wife was in Australia. She was speaking at a camp meeting in Australia and I was speaking to pastors in Siberia. And we were, it seemed like an eternity apart. Boy, did I want to see her. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. I longed and dreamed and thought about that time when we would get back, come back together again. And so, you know, I've heard it said, David just wasn't able to get to the sanctuary during these times that he was hiding out in the wilderness from Saul. And so, of course, he would want to think, oh, man, if I could just get back to the sanctuary. You think that's the... Does that get to the heart of it? Does that get to the bottom of it? Well, let's test it out. Let's fast forward in David's life. Okay, you, you see his, uh, his conquest. Finally, Saul dies. Remember up on the hills of Gilboa, and his son Solomon dies, and David is crowned king, first in Hebron, and then seven years later in Jerusalem. And then he fights against the Philistines and the other enemies that are sort of pressing in upon him, and he sort of makes peace in the land. And uh, then he forgets all about his thoughts about the sanctuary. Is that right? Don't let me feed you a line of, of, of baloney here. Does he forget about the sanctuary? No. In Second Samuel 7, the whole chapter is the story of him going to Nathan, the prophet, and saying, Nathan, you know, I've got a house built with Cedars of Lebanon. And, and God's still living in a tent. The tent that Moses built 400 plus years ago. I want to build him a house. And Nathan thinks that's a great idea. Until that night when he gets a dream and God says, no, tell David he can't be the one to build me a house. Because, why? He's got blood on his hands. He's a warrior. And my house is to be a house of peace. And so his son, Shlomo, Solomon, which means 
Shalomo, that's the name in Hebrew. Shalom, you hear Shalom there? Shalom, Shalomon is, Shlomo is simply peaceful one. The man of peace will build my house of peace. But then David hears God's sense of humor. I love God's sense of humor. He does humor, especially in plays on words, in puns. I play tennis with a guy that's my colleague at the seminary that cannot give a single sentence without punning on something. And it just just cracks us up in, in the most serious committee meetings, the board of trustees when it's supposed to be really serious. He'll come out with one of these puns that will just have us rolling in the aisles. Puns are great ways to to uh, get the point across and yet do it in a lighthearted way. And God has a pun here. He says, Nathan, tell David, you can't build God a house. But instead, God will build you a house. Whoa! The two meanings of the word house in Hebrew, like in English, it can mean a building, Or it can mean a dynasty. And God says, David, don't build me a house, a building. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And your son and your grandson and your great-grandson will sit on the throne until the Messiah comes. And he will be born in your line. And David can hardly bear that. I mean, can hardly believe that. And he goes, whoa. And the Hebrew there is so rich how he says, do you mean God? That you, through me, you're gonna you're gonna make the charter for all mankind. And so David gets the point. He can't build God a house, so he skips the idea, and he goes on to other ideas. Is that right? No. If he can't build the house, what can he do? Prepare. So help me. Let's do some free talking here. Talk back to me. What did he do to help prepare? The materials, wood, cedars of Lebanon floated down the the Mediterranean Sea and up from Joppa. Yes. What else? Quarried the stones. A third of the of Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, is hollow underneath. You can go down still in the quarries there that goes in. It seems like forever down into that cave where they cut these stones that are as long as from here to that wall, one stone, higher than you can reach, wider than you can reach, and so perfectly cut that you can that when they were piled on top of one another, you couldn't even put a knife blade in between them. It was with such precision. David built those with those giant ashlar stones, still standing today. Some of the original stones from from the temple that uh, Solomon built are still still there on the Temple Mount. What else? Wood? Gold. Yeah, gold. And what else? What other precious metals? Bronze. And what's that beautiful one in between, the gold and the bronze? The silver. Yeah, so gold and silver and bronze. Was he just sort of uh, freewheeling here? I mean, did he just think this all up on his own? Who gave him the plans? The text says that he got the plans from God. 
So he was under inspiration gathering the materials in order to fit the precise blueprint that God had planned for the temple. You've, you've mentioned materials, and we could add mention a few more, you know, the, the precious stones for the breastplate and a few other things we could mention. But uh, besides the materials, what else did he do to prepare for the temple? What do you need in a temple besides materials? Okay, furniture, but that's still made out of materials. Skip the materials. What else is a temple made? Yes. Faith. Okay. Yes. And David had plenty of faith and he kept moving forward on faith. That's right. Uh, yeah. Okay. We sang hymns to start our worship service. And David wrote the hymn book. It's called the Book of Psalms. Out of 150 Psalms, 99 of them are written by David. Two thirds of them are written by David. He wrote the music. And if that's not enough, he also invented musical instruments, the Bible tells us. Maybe the guitar we play today is invented by David. I don't know. It just says it was a stringed instrument. It doesn't give any details. Maybe David invented the guitar. Who knows? Anyway, he invented special instruments for the sanctuary. And then who performs the music? The singers, right? And the Instrumentalists, did you ever stop to notice how many singers there were at the temple choir? How about, how about 288? I mean, that, that makes the Mormon tabernacle choir, choir pale into insignificance. Here's 288 singers with 4,000 instrumentalists. And let's just add, as a on the side, they were all paid by the tithe. I mean, these were God's ministers paid by the tithe for the sanctuary service. Had David forgotten about the sanctuary? Hello? David's single-minded focus was still upon the sanctuary all through his life, even though he couldn't build it. And then we read a, a summary of what David says about his experience. And let's see, I've got that text up here. Second uh, Chronicles. Which one shall I read? I have several here. I think I think the one I will want to look at is first first Chronicles. And 29, chapter 29, after David had gathered all these things, notice what he said. First Chronicles 29, verse 1, Furthermore, King David said to all the congregation, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might. Oh. And then notice verse 3. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God. 
Do you hear that? David loved the sanctuary. He set his affection, his very lifeblood and his very heart went out as he was engaged in this building of the sanctuary. So I think it's fairly well established that David, all through his life, his single-minded focus never wavered. He wanted to be focused upon the sanctuary. Now, was David alone? Is this just something unique to David, and, or was this maybe something that the other biblical writers shared? How could we get at that? Well, one way we could get that at that would be to count how many chapters different Bible writers spent on the sanctuary. Let's take Moses. Five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes just page through and count the number of chapters, whole chapters. I'm not talking about little verses. Whole chapters that deal with the sanctuary. My count was 45 chapters about the sanctuary. Whoa! You go to the prophets, another 45 to 50 chapters about the sanctuary. And then, of course, you go to the Psalms, wisdom literature, and not only was the book of Psalms the hymnal for the sanctuary, but you start reading the Psalms, and on an average of one reference per psalm, I counted 150 explicit references focusing on the sanctuary in the 150 psalms. One per psalm focusing on the sanctuary. Then you go to the New Testament, and the New Testament writers are just saturated in sanctuary language. Gospel of John, we studied that for our Sabbath school lesson a few quarters ago. And the whole Gospel of John is structured around the festivals. Jesus takes and fulfills in his own life and ministry one festival after another. You go to the book of Revelation, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what pictures does Jesus give to John? Divides it up into seven sections. And at the beginning of every section of the book of Revelation, he gives him a vision of what? The sanctuary. A sanctuary scene. Seven sanctuary scenes. And if you know where you are in those seven sanctuary scenes, you have the key to unlocking the interpretation of the book of Revelation. It's the key. The sanctuary becomes the key for for getting at the big picture of the book of Revelation. Then you go to the Pauline writings. You know, it's saturated with... And Peter and the other epistles with the Lamb of God, with with Jesus as the priest, the high priest, with with, the... the allusions to the sanctuary all through, and we couldn't even begin to exhaust all of those allusions everywhere. I dare say there is more written about the sanctuary in the Bible than any other subject. I dare you to prove me wrong. Start counting chapters. In fact, the more you look, the more you see sanctuary imagery there. The whole Bible focuses in so many ways from so many different perspectives on the sanctuary. Now, is it any wonder then if the biblical writers had such a focus on the sanctuary, if the sanctuary was at the very heart of the experience of Israel? Maybe I should just go there for a minute. You know, God gave Israel various holidays, various holy days set apart for worship and celebration. Have you ever stopped to count how many there were that he gave them, where they were to come to the sanctuary? Every year? What would be your guess? Just a wild guess. 
How many per year? 28. Great guess. Higher. Don't go above 365, but, you know, be reasonable here. I counted 91 sanctuary holy days, holiday celebration. That's three months out of every year God set aside for coming to the sanctuary to, to worship, to celebrate, to rejoice. Now, I, you know, I... You might think I cheated a little bit, but I don't think I cheated. I added the 52 Sabbaths. I mean, wasn't that to come to the sanctuary? And the 12 new moon festivals, once every new moon, and then all the annual festivals, including the high holy days, and you come up to 91. And that's not even putting in uh, Purim, which comes later in biblical history. That would take you up. And then if you add Hanukkah that comes before the New Testament times, you're up to 100. You know, 100 a year. And then to add that, you not only went to Jerusalem, were, were, I mean, it was just what everyone did. Uh, the males had to go, and the women went when they could, when they weren't uh, occupied with giving birth or something that kept them away, uh, three times a year. And you went up, if you lived in Tel Dan, 150 miles or so north of Jerusalem, that took you a week and a half to two weeks to get there walking or by mule, and a week and a half, two weeks to get back. Three times. You start getting the picture. The people of Israel, even the ones that lived afar off, had their sights fixed upon the sanctuary. We, uh, we maybe go to the malls 91 times a year, because that's where, or maybe to the baseball or you know, sports events or something 91 times a year. Israel went to the sanctuary that many times. The people of Israel had their sights upon the sanctuary. Is it any wonder then that God's people in the last days have been invited to focus upon the sanctuary? Is it any wonder that when God raised up his, his remnant movement in the great advent movement of the late 1700s and early 1800s, the message that he gave them centered on the sanctuary? And Ellen White could write in Great Controversy, page 423, the subject of the sanctuary was the key that unlocked the mystery of the great disappointment of 1844. It opened to view, she continues, a whole system of truth connected and harmonious. She goes on to describe further the importance of the, of the sanctuary message. Now, you guys that are connected with Medicine know a lot more about systems than I do. I mean, you, do, you deal with systems of the body. My wife is a systematic theology, a theologian at the seminary. She looks at the system of the biblical truth. And Ellen White indicates here that the system that, that, that unites it all together, if you want to understand it, the key to unlock it is the sanctuary. And the Adventist message is not just a haphazard 
conglomeration of 27, 28 fundamental beliefs. It's knit together in a coherent and symmetrical system. And the sanctuary is the key that unlocks that system. Wow. Now tonight, I'm not going to get into why I believe the sanctuary message or the details of the of the Adventist understanding of the sanctuary. I think on a Friday evening, especially, the most important thing that we can we can bask in is the experience of the sanctuary. Because David, when he describes the sanctuary here in Psalm 27, he doesn't describe it in terms of abstractions or theories. He is describing an experience that he wants to have at the sanctuary. So for the next few minutes, I'd like to just unpack in a sort of a summary way. What is the experience that we can have in the sanctuary? What was the experience that David hungered for out there in the wilderness of Judea and he never let go in his, in his sight? What was the experience that drove the Adventist pioneers in their in their joy of the sanctuary message. I think it's summarized all here in Psalm 27. It's summarized in three words. Now, if you go to a philosopher, before we look at the scripture, if you go to a philosopher, the classical philosopher, and you ask him, what is worth dying for? What are the values that are worth dying for? Philosopher, every time, will tell you, the triple star of value. He'll mention them. Goodness, truth, and beauty. Or if you want to put it in another way, it's aesthetics, that's beauty. And ethics, that's goodness. And what is it, dogmatics for the truth. Those are the, those are the three values in life. Now, you know, I don't give a hoot what philosophers say because most of them are probably wrong. But I did find intriguing when Ellen White was writing Patriarchs and Prophets. What was it? Page 595, I believe, here. Five ninety-five, yes. And she called for a radical change in the educational system from how it was in the days of Battle Creek when they were doing classical uh, Greco-Latin uh, education that was totally theoretical and basically worthless for any preparation for practical uh, life. And she called for a, a radical change, returning to the model of the schools of the prophets. And then she said, the teachers in these schools I think she's probably talking about Loma Linda, as like as well as Andrews and all of our schools, should endeavor to awaken the love for goodness, truth, and beauty. That's Patriarchs and Prophets 595. What should we teachers be all about? We should be about the business of stirring up in the minds of our students a love for truth and goodness and beauty. And the interesting 
joyous thing that I discovered in Psalm 27 is the sanctuary experience captures all three of those. It encapsulates the essence of beauty and goodness and truth. Let's see how that works. Um, Go back to Psalm 27 now with me. Are you still with me? Are we together on the same page? Okay, let's get back to Scripture now. Uh, Exegeting Scriptures. Psalm 27. David says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. In order to, what is it he wanted to do there? Now here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's the experience he wants to have there. Number one, to behold the beauty of the Lord. The first thing he wanted to do at the sanctuary was to behold the beauty of the Lord. I find it fascinating that when God told Moses to make the sanctuary, he told him to make it for glory and for beauty. And when Solomon built the temple again, God uses those same words, make this for glory and for beauty. Because abstract theory doesn't cut it with the heart. But when you see something as beautiful, you stop and you say, wow. And it reaches inside your heart. And this word for beauty, and I might as well write it up here for you to be bored with, but who knows. It's the word noam. In Hebrew, it's noam. And it means not just abstract aesthetic qualities, but it means something that is so lovely, so, so entrancing, that it just grips you in your heart. And you just, you're never the same because of it. That's the meaning of this word noam. And, and this is a picture, the beauty of the Lord. It's the beauty of God that you see there in the sanctuary. And it's also the beauty that he wants to do in you in the sanctuary. It's, it's all of that beauty. Now, just a little hint that God wanted it to be beautiful. We've already talked about how beautiful the earthly sanctuary was. Let me just underscore it a little bit more. Uh, how beautiful was the Temple of Solomon? Ellen White says that it was the most beautiful building that was ever built, at least up till her time, in the history of the world. Let me just try to make that vivid. Have you ever stopped to figure how much gold there was in Solomon's temple? The text tells us. It tells us there was a hundred thousand talents of gold. Hundred thousand talents. Translate that into modern weights and it's 3,500 tons of gold. And you translate that into monetary figures and it is 40 billion dollars worth of gold. Solomon's temple. And then the the silver it says was a million talents of silver. That's 35,000 tons of silver. If you translate that into our Monetary amount, it's $5.8 billion worth of silver. 
And then how much bronze? Do you remember? They couldn't count it. They didn't have scales big enough to count. The, they just gave up. That we, we can't even. Our mathematicians can't get our get the, their minds around this. They gave up on calculating the bronze. And, and so, God made His house beautiful, His temple where His Shekinah glory dwelt. And yet, this temple on earth is just a faint reflection of the of the original temple. Because you remember the one that Solomon built and the one that Moses built was just a copy of the one in heaven, the original heavenly sanctuary. And I love the way Ellen White puts it. And I think I have that written here where she says this. This is in Great Controversy, page 414. The abiding, let's see, she first talks about the matchless splendor of the earthly tabernacle reflected to human vision, the glories of that heavenly temple where Christ our forerunner ministers. The abiding place of the King of Kings in heaven where thousands times ten thousands minister. That temple filled with the glory of the eternal throne where seraphim veiled their faces in the most, in the most magnificent structure reared by human hands on earth is but a faint reflection of the vastness and glory of that heavenly temple. We can't even begin to, to grasp the, the beauty of that temple. Now, I think the very fact that God made it so beautiful is trying to tell us, hey, the plan of salvation is beautiful. The sanctuary which points us toward the plan of salvation, which points us toward the character of God, is beautiful. In fact, uh, I was teaching the sanctuary class in Russia a few years ago. It was just the, I guess it would be, it was been, uh, when did communism fall in Russia? When the putsch was. I think it was 1991, was it? I think it was, I think it was the summer of 1991. And it was just the summer before communism fell. And they were still under communism. It was still a scary place to be. And some strange stories happened that month that our family was there. But uh, I had in my class a student who was an interior decorator. Now, I wondered, what could I ever learn from an interior decorator about the sanctuary? But she wrote her paper in Russian, but my translator translated it for me, so I got the gist of it. And she said, you know, in interior decorating, we learn that when you go into someone's house and you look at the way they arrange their house, if you know your interior de design, you know what kind of person they are. You can tell by a way a person decorates their house what kind of person they are. Well, that was a new thought to me. And so she suggested that, you know, God's house in heaven is really a reflection of who he is. And so I got to thinking about God's house. And I, I'm not trying to tell, say that I know exactly what God's house looks like, what the heavenly sanctuary looks like. But the point I want to make here is that it's called the house of the Lord here. The earthly sanctuary is called the house of the Lord and the heavenly one's called the house of the Lord. It's not just a temple where you go into worship. It's first and foremost, it's God's home. It's where he lives. And uh, I did have a teacher, however, a few years ago that 
told me what it, exactly what it was made of. Have you learned what the heavenly sanctuary is made of? My teacher shared with me uh, in sanctuary class, Dr. Hazel, unfortunately he's, he died of a tragic car accident, so he wasn't able to write this up, but uh, he spent about 10 minutes in class just dangling this carrot in front of our faces. Do you know what the heavenly sanctuary is made of? I know. Would you like to know? Here, you want to buy the carrot? And he just got us drooling, I mean spiritually drooling there as we were listening to him talk. And finally, he gave us the answer. It's simple. It's made out of heavenly stuff. Okay. <laughs> That's all I know. It's made out of heavenly stuff. It's a real spatial temporal reality. And, and tomorrow afternoon, as we look at hermeneutical issues with regard to the sanctuary, I'll, I'll try to share why it's so important that you don't just say the sanctuary is a metaphor like the evangelicals have done. Once you start doing that, you really get into trouble for many reasons. But sanctuary is a real place. I don't know exactly what it looks like. It's, it's more vast than, than my mind can probably take in at this level of, of our earthliness. But think about those articles of furniture for a minute. Let's just, let's just sort of stretch our minds for a few minutes. Uh, how, how long has the heavenly sanctuary been in existence? Has it been in existence before sin? Was it there before sin? You think? Any Bible proof or just your thoughts? All right, if it's his home, yes, that's good logic indeed. And there's a text to back you up, back your logic up. It's one we don't usually use, but it's Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 12. Jeremiah 17, 12. It says, Jeremiah 17, 12, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Now, the earthly sanctuary didn't have a glorious high throne. The ark was not high. It was just about this high. So to talk about a glorious high throne. You're up in the heavenly sanctuary. And it says, from the beginning, from the very beginning of creation, at least, and maybe beyond that, God had a home. Why? What was the purpose of the sanctuary? God's original purpose. Does God need to dwell in houses to keep warm or sheltered from the rain? No. Why does he dwell in space and time? There's one other text that tells us about his house, his heavenly house, before sin. In fact, there's two others in the Bible. One is in Ezekiel, chapter 28. We usually use this text to show the fall of Lucifer. But notice the description of where Lucifer Um, served. Verse 14, Ezekiel 28, 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Now when we're talking anointed cherub, where are we? In the sanctuary, right? In particular, where? That's right, in the Holy of Holies, those covering cherubs that were over the ark. So we're in the very Holy of Holies here. And it says that he was established there. And verse 18, you were perfect in your ways. Well, you're on the holy, you're, yeah, you're perfect in your ways, so it's before he sinned that it's describing here. 
He was a covering cherub there in the heavenly sanctuary in God's home. And it says you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. The pavement was so, so iridescent that it looked like it was on fire. Whoa! Holy mountain of God. Now, remember that phrase and turn over to one other text in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14. This is the other text in the Old Testament that describes the fall of Lucifer. Isaiah 14 and verse 12. Starting in verse 12. How are you falling from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of what? The congregation or the assembly, right? So this holy mountain of God, this heavenly home of God, is also the place of assembly. It's where the unfallen worlds came to meet with God. It's as if God said, hey, come on over to my home for some fellowship. And how do I know it was fellowship? Well, look at the furniture in the sanctuary. Usually we think of the furniture of the sanctuary in connection with the plan of salvation. I want you to stretch your minds. Even before the plan of salvation, if God had a home and this, and this, uh, the counterparts of this furniture were there in the heavenly sanctuary, and I'm not trying to know exactly what they looked like, but at least the counterparts, you've got a, a table with bread on it. Hey, what's a table with bread on it? What does that mean? It means where you come to eat, right? It means... A dinner table. And so it's the place. I like to think that that table of showbread in the heaven is that table of silver that's miles long that the redeemed are going to sit at that Ellen White writes about in early writings. So God says, hey, come on and have some table fellowship with me. And the lampstand representing the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit only necessary for people? You ask about the need for the Holy Spirit. When we, when we get to heaven, we'll no longer need the Holy Spirit. But he'll still be enlightening us, won't he? And so the, the influence, the, the, the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit there, I like to think of that part of the sanctuary as God's living room where we sort of, you know, sit down and just listen to the Holy Spirit teach us. Teach us the ways of Christ. And then the, the altar of incense. Do you like wonderful smells? You ever thought of what God smells like? I, I asked that question one time up at a church north of here about 200 miles. And that night there was a, a Native American who was on high on peyote that happened to come to church that night. And uh, as soon as I asked the question, have you ever smelled God? He stood up and he said, yeah, I can smell him right now. And he jumped out of his seat and ran up here to the front and started telling about the smell of God and the wonderful smell. that I, It smelled. It sounded more like peyote than it did the smell of God. But, uh, so I've been careful about asking that question. But, uh, but the incense, what does it represent? It represents Christ's righteousness, the merits of his, of his righteousness. Was Christ righteous before he became human? Wouldn't there be a nice thing to have the, you know, when you go to a, 
a palace of royalty. If you go over to, where do you come from? Where originally do you come from? Do you have temples where there's incense in the temples in Indonesia at all? Yeah, I mean, not that you go to, but you got, you know, Buddhist temples or Hindu temples. You walk in there and you smell this incense. You know that you're in the house of a god. There's that symbol of the incense. Now, I don't know what it means in those religions, but for the incense, it tells me that God even wants our sense of beauty, the beauty of our nose to be entranced. That not only the beauty of the eye but the be- and the beauty of the taste, but the beauty of the nose. That the whole sanctuary is beautiful. I'm just stretching our minds here to try to see a picture of the sanctuary beyond solving the sin problem. Even before there was a sin problem, these articles of furniture had a function in revealing to us the beauty of God. And so David longed to go to the sanctuary to see the beauty of the Lord. I urge you, when you study the sanctuary doctrine, let your mind just soar over its beauty. And I understand in November, the the full sanctuary is going to come here, a replica of it. Not a replica, but the, the real size, right? Go there and just be entranced by the beauty of God that it represents. Beauty of God. Now, very quickly, we're going to touch on these tomorrow. But just to mention the other two. One, beauty. David says, I want to see the beauty of the Lord. Second thing he wanted to do, back to Psalm 27. He said, I wanted to inquire in his temple. And this is the word in Hebrew, bakar. And bakar is not the normal word for inquire or seek. Bakar means to diligently search to find out the truth. To weigh the evidence. To see what is true and what is false. To diligently investigate the evidence to find out the truth. So David basically is saying, I not only want to explore the beauty of God in the sanctuary, but I also want to know the truth of the sanctuary message. I want to dig deep to grapple with the truth of the sanctuary message. And so I would put here, David's second experience was an experience of seeking to grasp the truth of the sanctuary message. It's hard for me to tell this story because it sort of cracks me up still with emotions, but it was just after I had finished my uh, studies at Andrews and I was preparing to start teaching at Andrews and I had my, my very best theological friend, you know, one that I pitched tents with for several years as a pastor and we prayed together and we wrestled together with the word and we did everything together during those times. Met together and led out for the, in the junior divisions camp meeting. We just were, we were good buddies. And um, this was the year that the storm broke in the Adventist church about the sanctuary doctrine. 
where questions were raised about the sanctuary message and where there was a 991-page document prepared to basically debunk this Adventist understanding of the sanctuary. And after my studies were done, I was given a chance to go to Israel to study, do some postdoctoral studies for a few months. And I came back from Israel, and my friend was waiting for me. He came to my door with that 991-page manuscript and several more, big stack of books. He laid them on my dining room table. He looked me square in the eye and he said, I dare you to read these and stay an Adventist. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you've been gone. I've been reading. I've read the 991-page manuscript and I've read these other books and I am convinced the sanctuary doctrine that Adventists teach is a bunch of worthless garbage. It cannot be founded upon solid biblical evidence. And so I'm, I'm, I'm getting out. And a few weeks later, he had packed up and he was headed out of the seminary. A few weeks later, I heard he'd re- resigned, turned in his credentials as a minister. A few weeks later, he'd turned in his membership to the Adventist church. A few weeks later, he'd started his own denomination. He left and urged me to come with him. What was, I, what was I going to do with that big stack of books that he left behind? I was just starting to, starting to teach at the seminary. And I didn't have time to read the books. And one thing, I, you know how teachers, their first year teaching, they're keeping just one day ahead of their students, if, if they're lucky. And so uh, I was preparing my lectures during the day and then at night. You know, when you get in bed, you want to do a little light reading. You know, it can make you drowsy and fall off. And so I pull up the 991-page manuscript and sort of just read a few pages to, you know, to put me to sleep. Right. The more I read, the more perturbed I got. Questions that I had about the sanctuary that I didn't have answers to. And finally, my wife, one night, she blurted out, Would you please put that stuff away? You're getting so, so miserable to be around that we can't... We can't hardly stand you around here anymore. And I didn't realize that it had such an effect upon me. But then I started looking at me. Oh, I was morose and I was, I was, I just was eating away at me. So I, I stopped reading, you know, doing that light reading at night. And, uh, instead took it, snuck it to my office and read it in my office. I thought, well, you know, at least if I'm going to be teaching and students are going to have questions, I better know the questions so I can know how to respond. And I, came to the conclusion that if this manuscript was right, I couldn't stay an Adventist. Now, I know there are those who have come to a different conclusion. They've decided that, yeah, the sanctuary doctrine is passe. We can set that aside and still be a cultural Adventist. You know, sanctuary, so what? Just a you know doctrine, one among many. We can check that one out and still keep everything else. And, but uh, I had seen too much about how the sanctuary was the heart of Adventism. It's what caused us to be Adventists in 1844 and following. I mean, every other doctrine some other church has, you can find it in another church. But if you believe that Christ entered into the most holy place in 1844 to start a a work of judgment, pre-Advent judgment, there's only one church teaching that. That's the Adventist church. 
And if we're wrong about that, why should I stay an Adventist? That was my, my conclusion I came to. And so I, I determined to get out if this wasn't biblical. But I wasn't ready to leave quite as fast as my friend because I'd seen God's working in the church too long to just walk away that fast. But I determined I needed to get to the bottom of it because I didn't want to stay an Adventist just because my parents were. Or I didn't want to believe it just because my teachers taught me or because the pioneers said so or because the pastor said so or even because Ellen White said so. Even as much as I believe in Ellen White, Ellen White herself tells, it, tells us, don't believe it because I say so, believe it because Scripture says so. Go back and test it with Scripture. And so for a period of weeks and months, stretched out into years, I anguished over this doctrine, agonized to, to try to grapple, to try to bakar like David did, to search as diligently and as deeply as I knew how to test to see whether this doctrine was true. Now I hoped that I would only, that I would maybe just find enough evidence that I could hang my doubts on, you know, I'd stay an Adventist. I could just find, you know, just enough and stay with it. Well, it's been a number of years since those, those crucial months and years. I can't say that I found all the answers to all of the questions I found that have been raised. But I've come to a settled conclusion that the sanctuary doctrine as taught by Adventists doesn't have to be jettisoned. In fact, I found not just a little bit of evidence. I found so much evidence for this doctrine that it caused me to not only believe it was true, but to fall in love with this doctrine and to realize that it wasn't just a doctrine to be believed. It was a powerful, life-changing message that has made a difference in my life. And so I haven't had to remove a single pin or peg or pillar of the sanctuary message. And tomorrow afternoon when we have a question and answer period, I'd be happy to share with you some of those evidences that have uh, come forth in just the last few years that have given further reasons to believe this sanctuary message and its relevance for us today. Not only its truthfulness, but its relevance. Have you done this? Have you bacard with the sanctuary? I encourage you, don't take my word for it. Don't take the preacher's word for it or the pastor's, teacher's, um, parents, friends, evangelists, whoever you might want to plug in there. Dig it out for yourself. Go through step by step and do what David did. Dig to see that it's true. I, I can tell you that because I know you're going to find, I know what you're going to find if you're honest in heart. You're going to find more evidence than you ever dreamed. Evidence that's not only theory, but it's going to be mind-blowing, practic, practical, relevant stuff that's going to make you say, wow, what a doctrine. And then there's the last one. Goodness. Look over down back to Psalm 27 for one more time. Psalm 27. Have you heard the word chiasm? Has that ever been brought up here? Chiastic structure. I hate that word. It's a it's a it's a ten dollar word when you can have just a simple word. You know why not just call it a mountain climbing pattern? 
Because, you know, a chiasm is, well, you, what, you, what you find here at the beginning, you find at the end. What you find here, you find next to the end. What you find here, you find in the third to the end. What you find fourth, you find in the fourth to the end. It's what happens when you climb a mountain. You know, you climb up a mountain, and I think I can still remember the life zones around here in Southern California. You know, the manzanita trees down here, and then you get up a little higher, and the oak trees up here, and then you get into the pine trees. And then you get into the smaller pine trees and finally the timber line and then the top. And then you go down the other side and, whoa, there's the timber line and there's the smaller pine trees and the bigger pine trees and the oak trees and the manzanita trees in the reverse order as you're going down the other side. That's a chiasm. Why use the big word when you can get a picture of climbing a mountain? And... Uh, this whole psalm, Psalm 27, is written in a chiasm. And we could show all the points that, that match, but, psalm, but verse 4 has as its matching pair down here in verse 13. Verse 13 is the matching of verse 4. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Here's the third word. Tuv. Goodness. Those are the three experiences that David wanted to have in the sanctuary. Tomorrow morning for our sermon, I want to talk about the goodness of the Lord, the good news of the Lord, especially as it's represented at this time of year. Last Thursday was Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. We're living in the antitypical Day of Atonement. And uh, I want to share why it's become good news to me, why I see the goodness of the Lord in the sanctuary, special sanctuary message that we teach. Now, to wind up our, our, our study here together tonight, um, a chiasm, whoops, I said that naughty word, a mountain climbing uh, pattern. What's the most important part of that? Why, why do Bible writers like to write in this structure? It's at the top, isn't it? You know, when, when, when Joanne and I first started dating, she found out that I was an inveterate backpacker. I loved to backpack. And I loved to climb mountains. I'm not into the ropes and that kind of stuff, but I, the mountaineering stuff, just really, I really get high on that. And as our relationship was growing more and more serious, she got more and more worried because she grew up, uh, her mom likes to say that her idea of exercise was walking from the car to church on Sabbath morning. That was about all that she liked to do. I say that on her because now she's the one that grabs me in the morning and throws me out of, I mean, sort of uh, encourages me to get out of bed and get my exercise. So she's the exercise freak in the house now. But those days, she could not quite grasp what made me tick. And she was afraid if she got hooked to me that she might get drawn into doing what I did. And so she got up the courage one day to ask me, what do you enjoy about putting on a backpack that's, that crunches your shoulders and those boots that give you blisters on your feet and you go up switchbacks, hot switchbacks, one after another with parched throat and the sun beating down on you, giving a sunburn. 
and you know, on and on. What do you like about that? And you know, I, I rarely can surprise Joanne, but I think I got her that one time. I looked her straight in the eye and I said, you know what? I hate it. I hate the blisters. I hate the sore shoulders. I hate the sunburn. I hate the sore throat, the dry throat. She says, well, why do you do it? I said, it's simple. I do it because of the view from the top. When you get to the top of Mount Whitney, Anybody been to the top of Mount Whitney? Great. Anybody been 10 times? Have you really? Put it there. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to get 11 this year. So, I mean, we're a long ways from Holda Crooks. I realize that. But uh, we're going to make it. Yes. I, I, I want to get there every year to the top of Whitney. And, you know, you, you can look north and you see 100 peaks straight up north. Count them one after another up there or go to the Rocky Mountains and climb one of those 14ers and you can look in 360 degrees and you did it. You know, you summited it again. There's just something you can't describe about it unless you've done it. And Joanne summited one of those mountains and she's hooked now. That's why she broke her leg. She was backpacking a few weeks ago. She was on her way down. She had, she'd already conquered and she came down and she had the flu. And uh, we had to get out to get back to school, so she had to hike out with the flu, and she had, she was weak and lost her balance and broke her ankle, so she's been on crutches for the last three or four weeks. But you haven't given up on the hiking, right? <laughs> Great. Okay. So you 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 like to hike? I like to hike because of the view from the top. And I, these mountain climbing structures, Psalm 27, is not no exception. What is right at the center? is the most important thing. And what's right at the center is not verse 4. Do you notice that? Verse 4 is not in the middle of the psalm. And verse 13 is not in the middle. What's in the middle is verse 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. What's the heart of the sanctuary experience? And this whole psalm is filled with sanctuary language. It's the most saturated sanctuary psalm in the book of Psalms. And it's read by the Jewish people in preparation for the high holy days that we're experiencing right now. But what's the heart of the experience? Your face, Lord, I will seek. God longs for the sanctuary to be a time when we come into his house, into his home, to seek his face. Have you done that recently? You ever been to the heavenly sanctuary? Is that something new to think of? You know, the book of Hebrews invites us four times to come boldly to the heavenly sanctuary. Let me check off the, just tick off the texts. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence within the veil. Our hope goes within the veil to the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews uh, 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, having boldness to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of Faith, like my brother in the back said earlier. But the point is, he wants us, he's inviting us to come to the heavenly sanctuary. 
And the, the, uh, um, the third one I skipped is over here in chapter 4 and verse 16, 416. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then finally, Hebrews 12. This is my favorite one. Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. And it goes on to say, and to Jesus Mediator of the new covenant. Does it say you will come? Or you might come? It says you have come. God wants us to reckon that we've already come to his heavenly sanctuary. I believe this is the secret of how to seek his face in his sanctuary. Because it's his home and he invites us by faith to imagine that we're there to come boldly to his sanctuary, to live there, in fact. Not just to pray our way in. Sanctuary prayer is great, but that's not enough. I like to call it sanctuary life. Today was a long day for me. I got up at 5 in the morning. I hadn't gotten to bed too early last night. Still on jet lag from Siberia. And then I ran into wheat, Joanne, and I had a lot of difficulties getting here. And then I won't go into all of those troubles. And uh, I was tempted, really tempted to just throw it all. Lord, why am I going to California? You know, why am I, why am I taking this trip? But I started thinking about these texts. I said, Lord, take me away from the traffic that I had forgotten was so busy here in Southern California as we were inching along a few inches from Ontario few inches, uh, seemed like a few inches an hour. I said, Lord, take me to the heavenly sanctuary. And you know, suddenly there was a calm that came. This peace that you described to someone that was asking for peace. Was it you that was saying for peace? The sanctuary experience provides answers for all of those things that you mentioned at the beginning. If, if you would just want to go there. You want to get away? What's that Southwestern ad? You know, want to get away? You ever heard, seen that ad? There's a better ad than that. You want to get away permanently by faith from the problems that oppress you in this world? Think of the sanctuary as God's house where he invites you to come and just experience life with him. Um, we'll just end with this story. Jim, my friend at the seminary, was a guy about six foot Seven. He was huge. He was also very strong. And he was also very funny. He had the sense of humor that would just, no matter how serious I'd try to make my class, he would find a way to just break everyone up into tear, into tears of laughter. I mean, you know, you just couldn't keep a straight face with Jim around. He was a tennis player. And he'd get me out on the tennis court. And he had such a high serve that he would hit the ball at such a steep angle. It would come over the net, and it would bounce right up over my head and my racket, and time after time, I couldn't even get the ball. And then he would just roll in the court with laughter, as it were. You know, just, 
just rejoicing that he had done one in on his professor again. Well, this one, we had a lot of fun in the hallways and on the tennis court. And so I, we invite our, Joanne and I invite our students over for our classes. Uh, when we t- our, teach a class, we invite them over to our house at least once during the semester. And we invited Jim along with the rest of the class that he was in my class that semester. Oh, I, I forgot to tell you, when he, just to give a little idea of Jim, he, he, when he left the seminary, his first conference president, he uh, took a snowball in the wintertime and threw it right through an open window and hit the conference president right on the side of the head. Another time he took a water balloon and he was staying in the upstairs motel room and when the conference treasurer came out, he dropped the water ball, balloon right on the guy's head. I mean, this was Jim. He's crazy. <laughs> and so you never knew what he was going to do. So uh, I, I, you know, I invited the students over and uh, we had a good, good time. Finally, everyone left except Jim. And Joanne and I were in the kitchen just sort of cleaning up the dishes. And I heard this voice behind me. Well, steps crunching steps of a six foot seven giant, you know, coming closer to me. And then I heard him say, hey, Doc, can I give you a hug? And, you know, I could just imagine me turning around and him taking me in his giant claws and just crushing every bone in my upper torso, you know. (laughs) And so I could imagine all kinds of things that Jim might do to me. And so I was trying to think of something funny to say as I turned around to respond to him. I turned around and looked him in the face, and he had tears streaming down his cheeks. I'd never seen Jim cry before. He said, no, Doc, can I give you a hug? He said, you know, I've, I've been in Adventist schools all my life. I went to an Adventist elementary school and an Adventist academy and Adventist college and now I'm just ready to graduate from an Adventist seminary and I've never been invited over to a teacher's home before. Thanks, Doc. Can I give you a hug? And now it was my turn to cry. <laughs> we just embraced there for a long time. And I got to thinking how, you know, Jim looked forward to being at a teacher's house Something pretty special. You know, we had fun in the, in the tennis court, and we had fun in the classroom and in the hallways, but there's something special about being invited home. Invited home, and I'm just a teacher. What's it like to be invited home to God's home? And God says, hey, I'll walk with you. I'll walk with you through your exams and through all your problems here. I'll be there beside you, but, you know, how about just coming on home? Come on home. That's what the sanctuary means to me. God says, I want you to be in my home. By faith, every day, you can come home. And then someday, he says, John 14, 1-3, my father's house. What's that? In my father's house? What's the, what's the house of the father? The, fa- the father's house. The house of the Lord. That's the sanctuary. In my father's house and the sanctuary are many mansions, many rooms. And I'm preparing one for you. And when I come again, I'll take you to be with me in my Father's house in the sanctuary. You'll live there with me in my sanctuary. That's the sanctuary message. We'll be able to seek his face every day for eternity.
May that be our experience now by faith, sanctuary life. And may we like David as he closes his Psalm 27, he says, wait for the Lord. And this word wait that he uses isn't just waiting like the dead people wait in their grave. It means waiting on tiptoe. Wait for the Lord. I can hardly wait for him to come and take me to his heavenly sanctuary. And then when that sanctuary comes down after the millennium, this will be his home and we'll have a room. And I'm sure all you guys will have your country home somewhere here in Southern California and I'll be joining you. There won't be any smog then. But on Friday, the speed of thought, we'll head to the New Jerusalem and we'll be able to spend every Sabbath in God's house because we've got a room there. We've got a mansion there. That's our house. That's our home. He's preparing it for it. When he comes, I pray that not one of us will be missing for that experience. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for the message of the sanctuary. Yes, there's a work of judgment going on now. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But help us to get the big picture of the sanctuary, that it's the place where you live, where you love us, and where you invite us now to come and experience life with you. And where soon those homes in your, those rooms in your home, you will Come and get us and you'll take us to be there forever. We can hardly wait, Lord. May each heart say yes to you tonight. Everyone here determined by faith, by your grace. Not one of us will be missing for that great reunion in the Father's house. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.